to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that records in a bomb shelter. We've got uh, barrels and barrels of port and some cold cured beef, though, so we should be fine for a couple of years, Amanda. Heck yeah, I brought some brandy, too. Okay. Did you bring any (laughs) books into the bunker for us to read? Oh, no, curses! (laughs) We're going to just have to make our own literature. (laughs) The worst kind of all, the kind that's made by you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how long I could last off port and just cured beef, but you know, we'd have to give it an experimental try to really find out. I feel like we would definitely have gout by the end of it. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, not not easy to move around in those, but I guess isn't it hard to move if you have gout? Isn't that the foot condition? Yeah, it's, it's okay. um like stiffened joints. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I guess I, you know, as long as I could do my little lap around the bomb shelter, I think I'd be fine. Yeah. If you have no idea why we are talking about staying in bomb shelters, that is because you are listening to a book club episode. Specifically, this is our part one book club episode on the historical kind of narrative uh, biography called The Church, Hill, and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom by Thomas E. Ricks. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. I'm joined as always, I'm Travis also, but I'm joined as always by my co-host Amanda, who I'm excited to introduce. Hey, Amanda. (laughs) Hello. No need to introduce myself, but Amanda is here as always. She's ripped up and ready to go. She's high on the port and the beef, and and we're ready to podcast. We are a literature and book club podcast. We're here today with an analysis episode, so we'll be discussing the book, again, Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. We'll be talking about chapters one through eight of that book, so about the first half. I think it's technically over half, right? Just a little over? Yeah. Okay, Just so a little bit over. A little over halfway, but that's chapters one through eight is what we'll be discussing. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We have social media accounts that are active and that post reminders about our upcoming schedule and everything. Um, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. And if you haven't already, follow us and uh, I guess subscribe to a podcast platform of your choice, really. We're on Apple, Spotify, and all of those kind of the ones that connect to those (laughs) stitcher i think we're up on there too so leave a review and recommendation tell friends and family etc and um we'll keep just plugging away here doing book clubs today amanda chose the book which again i'll for the third time i'll drop the title just in case you haven't you know forgotten by now churchill and orwell the fight for freedom um amanda you chose this one the prompt i believe i gave you was i for a book that you owned but haven't read yet right Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. On the idle shelf, my idle kind of books in waiting bookshelf is truly enormous. It's actually like embarrassing. <laughs> I'm a hoarder, full on hoarder at this point. So that's why I chose it because I stare at mine all the time in fear and intimidation. So why did you pick this one for that prompt? Um, I also have a humongous pile of books um, mm-hmm. on a specific, very specific. Um, bookcase because i have yes. so many bookcases in my house i too have dedicated um, and i thought it would fix my ways i thought it would fix all of my my ills and errors when i decided to put every book i own that i haven't read into its own shelf and right. it has not fixed me <laughs> it hasn't fixed it for me every day i still wake up and i am <laughs> i'm still me and it's really disappointing <laughs> um but this one i bought um I think like a a year ago, um, I was, as one does, walking through a bookstore and it caught my attention. 
Um, just because I was like, you know what, I really need to get into some more nonfiction. So I was like looking in the nonfiction area, but like in the bestsellers nonfiction okay. area. Yeah. Um, and it just appealed to me because I was like, I like George Orwell. Sure. I, I know a little bit about World War II. This could be interesting. So. <laughs> yeah. And you knew Churchill was a crotchety old bastard. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> intriguing in a figure to study. Yeah, it is an odd juxtaposition, which the author himself kind of, his thesis is pretty clearly a, a bit of a juxtaposition, and I think that's part of the bravery of it, though. You know, he's making yeah. a decent case so far throughout the book why these two men are intertwined and everything. But yeah, initially, if your knowledge of either of them is pretty casual or cursory, it does make for an odd pairing. If you Again, if right. you know only like a Wikipedia sentence's worth of information, you might see them and think, oh, okay, that's a strange combo right yeah had you heard of the author before anything like that or was this total bookstore uh the happenstance randomness i've never heard of this author before but yeah. uh, apparently he's won a pulitzer prize <laughs> excellent okay we're on the right track already yeah <laughs> okay excellent well that's a good pick and anything honestly i just wanted to contribute to the important mission of getting books off of your shelf Yes, thank you. And switching them over. I have many over. more. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I can, we could do a whole book club about it, and we'd be done in 50 years, I think, for mine. At, the, <laughs> yeah. at our current book club pace, I think it would take about the rest of our adult lives to accomplish that. So it's impossible. Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll hold on to that shame, and I'll deal with it in my own time. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> well, let's dig into the book club. We are going to be spoiling, if that's even a term you can use for nonfiction, but we're going to be talking about the first half of the book. Again, chapters one through eight. So we'll be discussing that in full, spoiling whatever we want to, talking about whatever we want. So if you're sensitive to that kind of discussion, then just hit pause now and come back, I don't know, in a week or two when you've read that part. Or, you know, you can always just listen in. Even if you haven't read, we enjoy having those listeners along for the ride as well let's dig in amanda we're going to begin with our part one of every nonfiction book club we do which is to do surprises pleasant or otherwise i think we do this for the fiction too don't we i think so yeah i think so it's just a, it's a pretty general statement or a segment that the statement explains it we're going to each talk about a surprise that we found in the work so far it can be good it can be bad it can be somewhere in between um and it was your pick so start us off with your surprise sure um, I was surprised by the literary analysis bits um, mm -hmm. scattered specifically in the Orwell chapters. Um, we have a little bit of that too in with Churchill where there's some analysis of his speeches and some um, commentary on his other writings. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I was, I suppose I was just expecting more of um a history and there is quite a bit of a discussion of history but i just didn't expect any of the literary analysis i suppose and then on the back as well of the the back of the book it keeps referring to this as a biography but i just i feel like it's not actually a biography either um because of the way that the author just like really clicks through um, important moments in both um, Orwell and Churchill's lives without actually like delving into anything except for like the World War II specific right. stuff, like the right. big events there. So it's more for me, I guess I was just surprised by how it's, it's an analysis of the times, um, mm -hmm. but there is literary analysis and there is like 
barely any biography so it was just right. not at all what i was expecting it's all to service the thesis right which is pretty clear right. and it's that these two people at different ends of a certain political spectrum ended up united in world war and during world war ii their sort of political beliefs and aspirations and everything aligned I right. think the Orwell analyses, too, across all the books, it's pretty skewed, right? Because almost every time he brings it up, it's to show, well, either the important thread, the first important thread he wants to establish is that he wasn't a strong writer at first or that his writing wasn't that great out of the gate. You know, he kind of right. had a somewhat burgeoning literary career but was not known, and his writing was just not that good. But then also he notes his political progression through that and kind of points out how he was observing certain political trends and his writing was you know like the down and out in paris and london is kind of shabbily socialist but not it's already kind of conflicted and has weird passages and then that you know he's basically poking at his politics and is trying to reveal right. what we can learn about him you know as a political person through that stuff so it's it's also mm -hmm. i mean that i wouldn't call it de in-depth analysis but it's you know somewhat adequate for what he's trying to point out with we some weird digressions in there too yeah, the, the biography bits and the literary analysis bits are all connected to the idea of their political identities yeah. and their core belief in the um, idea of personal individual freedoms. Right. Um, so, right. yeah, so everything leads to that, which is why it's it's confusing to me that that the people on the back of this cover said that it's a biography i was just like but it's not it's really not. right it's a very skewed one or it's a very yeah. limited one in scope you know he went out of his way to even say although i only want to study world war ii i have to do an intro for each person i have to you know right. give you a very fast i'm sure biographies covering their childhoods would take take up a whole book and he's like i'm doing right. it in a chapter so buckle up right and it's like not even the whole chapter it's like half yeah. a chapter and then it's like let me jump to when he's in his 20s <laughs> right right it does take some massive leaps so it's it is a pretty narrow work in that way which i think makes it quite readable and easy to recommend at least so far you know halfway through it's you're not looking at an eight volume tome of a total right. academic you know comprehensive work this is very skewed for a thesis of a kind you know wants to make a clear case yeah i i don't know if the literary stuff has surprised me mostly because i knew going in well i you know what do we have from both men orwell wrote a bunch of books and articles and churchill gave a ton of speeches and i guess he was pretty prolific writer too which i really didn't know but i guess that makes sense for a politician of that age but right i so i expected discussions of rhetoric for sure i didn't know what kind it would be i found it to be mostly i don't know a little even-handed if a little plain i thought some of it there was one part from Down and Out. He wants to point out that olfactory kind of motif oh, in yeah. Orwell, how he was probably had that that hypersensitivity to smells. Um, mm -hmm. And at some point, he points out that in the 200-page book, there are eight references to smell. And I remember thinking, like, that doesn't even see, that seems low, even <laughs> you know, like maybe <laughs> eight, maybe eight in two pages. I would have blinked at, but it, am I off about that number? I swear he quoted eight at some point, and I remember shrugging yeah, and thinking, was... like, is that really so alarming? for sensory information <laughs> yeah i remember also not being that impressed with the the number necessarily so yeah. yeah there have been moments like that that i felt were not out of hand or out of pocket but just not compelling either just i kind of shrugged at it and thinking like i don't know if that's as significant as you think though the smell theme throughout orwell's body of work i think is noticeable ish and so 
you know, it's like point taken, but I don't know if that's the most compelling way to make it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And have you enjoyed the literary moments or are they not, are they too deep, not deep enough? I would assume. I've enjoyed them. I would love to see like a more in-depth discussion, I suppose. But I mean, mm-hmm. he gets his point across and, and he's, I mean, clicking along just cause he needs to, you know, he's got a lot to discuss Right. As far as both of them. Um, but I would say that I would like to specifically with like Orwell or not Orwell, Churchill's stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing like with Churchill's writing that he said about it was uh, he was kind of, he kind of sniffed at it, right? He was like, meh. It's, yeah. I mean, it's meh. <laughs> it's too bombastic and too absurdist. Yeah. I, I thought that, yeah, he kind of took a dig at the thing he wrote about being in Africa or the Middle East. I forgot where he was fighting in some early war, the Boer War. Or is mm-hmm. it Boer? 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 B-O-E-R? Boer? Boer War? I, I don't know. Well, Boer whatever that war was called, um, he, he does definitely turn his nose at the Churchill's writings in that section, which I thought was pretty yeah. funny. So I'll jump into my surprise. It's Churchill related. I am surprised. So I didn't know much about Churchill going into this, and I knew a ton about, um, I was going to call him Oscar Wilde, but it's Orwell. <laughs> George, I knew a ton about George Orwell going in. I, I had Wilde on the brain because I'm about to compare Churchill to Wilde, but the thing that surprised me most are the humble origins of Churchill, even though he was, you know, grew up in a kind of an aristocratic background, but his family was just a hot mess. And he grew up in a pretty, I think, functional economically, but then socially and emotionally dysfunctional home. So I was a little surprised by that because I really knew almost nothing about Churchill other than his speeches from World War II or what have you. I was also then shocked to learn that he was also pretty much a blustery fraud who kind of bumbled his way into the big public stage. Like, I I think his getting into wars and conflicts and seeking that out is, you know, that's, he was making a military career out of it. But, Mm -hmm. and and that part, that, that section that reads kind of like a thriller where he has to survive in South Africa, where he's, you know, captured and he has escaped. And he, you know, those are significant not to be sniffed at achievements um, of survival and human, you know, endeavor or whatever, but it just, he didn't have any expertise, wasn't especially educated, and he just kind of said, no, I'm going to make a name for myself. And just, you know, the, the confidence oozing out of him and the arrogance of it all, it did remind me of how Wild pursued his entire American voyage in a kind of a similar manner, though not out of maybe such a heightened violent masculinity or something. But I, I was surprised to find that connection. Apparently, it's just a lot of the, these great figures of history have humble origins and are perhaps even frauds. It's the is fake it till you make it not a cliche then? <laughs> it's just a truth, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I I don't know. I had assumed Churchill came from an aristocratic privileged background which it does seem clear that was the case especially economically but yeah right. the, the misery of some of his early years or the misery of some of his early life the the letter from his father on page 9 yeah, I'll, I'll never brutal. forget reading that and i it was just a <laughs> totally brutal takedown and so yeah i guess just the the humility or something and then also like the arrogance a bit of churchill's origins did take me by surprise yeah, I, it's so funny because when I was reading it, I also, in my notes, I wrote down, wow, he's like wild. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of, well, I don't have a clear plan, don't have any talents really to speak of, and I'm going to go be famous now. See you yep. later. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I know of my own greatness. You know, I can see yeah. it when no one else can. It's, um, yeah, a unique quality of these people who apparently history will remember well. And yeah, the letter from his father, I mean... 
Good lord. Just I'm pulled it open just because the quotes from this are just incredible. This is the grand result that you come up among the second and third rate class who are only good for commissions in a cavalry regiment. So, you know, he denigrates him on his class. I shall not write again mm-hmm. on this matter, and you need not trouble to write any answer to this part of my letter because I no longer attach the slightest weight to anything you may say about your own acquirements and exploits. You will become a mere social wastrel, one of the hundreds of public school failures, and you will de- degenerate into a shabby, unhappy, and futile existence. If this is so, you will have to bear all the blame for which of such misfortunes yourself. Uh, after not even raising the boy, you know? know it's not right? like he had any part in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Terrible. And and I was just thinking, too, that, like, both Churchill and Wilde, their, their fathers died at a fairly young age for them, but their mothers were such lively people, right? Both... Um, Oscar Wilde's mom and Churchill's mom, right? Churchill's mom's like marrying guys the same age as Churchill, like 20 years younger than her. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of going about town. It is an odd connection. Perhaps uh, the Freudians out there, Freudian scholars can read into it, that both of their mothers were kind of socialites, Wilde's and and Churchill's. But yeah, that that was just my surprise. His entire origin story, I think almost every part of it surprised me. Uh, the only non-surprising part was that his family was actually pretty well off and he went to private, what they call public school, we would call private school. But right. other than that, I was quite struck by all the turns in it and that relationship and everything, so. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the Please Continue Make It Stop segment, which again speaks for itself, but it's when each of us picks one element of the text or the storytelling or the writing so far that we would like to continue and one that we would like to make stop. I'll jump in first. I guess I made you go first last time. I think I'll throw my Make It Stop out here first since it ties into what I just said. I think, and there's a couple ways I'm thinking about this now that I wrote it. I think it's maybe a little too much Churchill for the overall project and ambition of the book. I think it's leaning a little too Churchill heavy, which granted in terms of the historical record and impact on history and like the grand history of world events and countries and nations and yada yada. I mean, that's Churchill gets his own books for a reason. He's a figure that is studied for many, many important and valid reasons. But to then want to rope him in with Orwell, it does just feel Churchill dominated, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. thus far. And, you know, we're through chapter eight, so who knows? I I think there's another part to this, though, that isn't really on the authors, maybe just on me, which is I knew, like I said, a lot about Orwell before reading this book and had studied his works in life. So I think those sections, I'm just not learning anything new, but it's all nice refreshers like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And oh, yes, that's what the the P.O.U.M. or the poem was or, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm like, OK, I remember that now or I remember that happened to him, etc. All the books they've mentioned, I've read parts of or most of. And so it's just. I don't know, maybe that's where my bias is coming from, where it feels like the Orwell stuff, since I'm kind of passively cruising through it, it feels like there's not much to those sections. And so when I get to the Churchill stuff, it's like, oh, there's a lot of new information, overwhelming amount of detail, and I just feel more, I guess, bogged down in a way. It's It's been enjoyable to read. But I think just overall the balance could be struck a little better. So that's my, my make it stop. I'm not sure if it's hitting you that way, though. Um, definitely I agree that there's a lot more of Churchill so far. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if it's going to actually flip in the latter half, just because the author makes the point of saying that uh, 1984 and Animal Farm um, were not written 
at this point in in the, right, the chronological right. sequence that he has, and that his previous works were, you know, not. Uh, he wasn't popular as a writer um, during his his lifetime at that right, point. Right, pretty minor. So, right. Um, so I'm not. So I'm, I'm guessing that in the latter half he's going to make more. Uh, he'll have more discussion with Orwell. I had the only knowledge I have of Orwell um, before this was just having read 1984 and Animal Farm. Oh, okay. So, yeah. yeah. I had no idea about any... <laughs> and I will say that, like, my my knowledge of what was going on, like, the I, I know World War II as it was taught in, like, you know, high school and stuff like that. Right. But the the events in Spain, that the, the poem and stuff like that, and even, like, mm-hmm. um, Stalinism versus... What's the other guy? To type the poems leader there, P O U M. Oh, tr- a Trotsky. I was, Trotsky. I was, yeah, I, I was like a tr- but uh, yeah, no, a Trotsky was a Russian political figure who is. It's it's like offshoots of Leninism, kind of. There's right. a you know communism in, in Russian figures get re- it's really quite complicated and intertwined, but it's like a type of communism that would be. It's like a little sect that broke off, you know? It's a little counter group within the larger movement. Right. So I, I had no knowledge of that before right, right. this either. So I was like reading the stuff specifically with like Orwell's uh, ventures into into the left there. Like I just, I was like, man, I don't know half as much as like okay. I thought that I knew yeah. about what was happening during that time period and about communism and stuff like that. I yeah. like no knowledge. Like I've read Marx um, and we've in classes, uh, we've talked about uh, communism and stuff like that. But I just, I, I didn't know about the other like stuff around that. So I've, I've yeah. been fascinated reading this, um, but a lot of stuff I'm like, I need to actually do some more research. Well, I think too, I, I thought the sections about Britain, the aristocracy's involvement with Nazism, which I, I knew about as a sentence, but never had seen examples of or had read, you know, clippings from journals and all that like firsthand documentation he's pulling up about how close some of those people were with Nazis and how many you just thought, well, let's just make a deal with them and get this over with. Who cares? It's Europe. We'll be whatever we can. I, I, I knew all of that attitude and that political history, but not it's seeing it in detail definitely brought it into a much clearer light for me. And I think what you said is right. The history of continental Europe with communism is is just such a different lens perspective and engagement than America Mm -hmm. received communism in a very particular way. I mean, it it had obviously had a small foothold and a little history kind of pre-World War II, but America's history with communism basically starts with Russia becoming a power after the war. And then immediately the cold war ramping up if not actually just starting germany splits that kind of so and so europe just has a much different history and view of kind of communism and the history of it there especially pre you know russian or soviet union like it's yeah the the attitudes toward it the different types and splinter groups of it everything it was it's just a very different attitude about it all yeah so, well, that's okay. Do you feel maybe then for you, the balance is, do you feel like you're getting new stuff from both narratives equally then, or like new, I don't know, perspectives equally or something? Yes. Um, but okay. I will say with Orwell's stuff, um, 
I just, I want to delve in more just because again, that's not, that's not uh, Rick's focus. So he only gives like, just like snippets of information that I'm just like, wait, but I want to know more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it, it is meant to be a pretty brief study and that brevity can be compelling or I guess frustrating too, but yeah, no, I think that, and for I'll say for my very limited part, I studied Orhel, or, Orwell, Orhill, that's the, their son's name, <laughs> <laughs> Bobby Orhill. <laughs> no, I, Orwell, I did a class, a seminar in him, and then kind of did my own independent study after of, you know, personal interest, trying to read through his all of his books and whatnot. But so my, my own background with him is, so, I would say somewhat deep, not super deep, but at least a little. And I think so far he's been pretty even handed if... The funny thing is that I have noticed this thread, and I know he brought up in there, I don't remember the chapter, but he talked about how in a recent survey of a conservative American magazine, I think the National Review, they like rank Orwell's books as like the best books of the last hundred years. And there's this weird strain because Orwell is such a skeptic and such a critic of the left, and he was a Mm -hmm. leftist, that like... People, a lot of conservatives will champion him as like, see, he he was clear eyed and he like it's a weird reclamation project by some conservatives to be like, no, don't you get it? He was he saw the truth about the left, which is just a bizarre like he literally fought a war for socialism and like got <laughs> shot in the neck for it. Like he yeah. it's just a very odd. I've seen that uh, in college, especially, too, when I was like looking, studying it and I don't know, getting into his life or whatever impact and everything. So it's it's a weird kind of his, his pol- political background is complicated. His history is complicated. I think this version based on, again, my knowledge would be a, it's skewing a little conservative in how it portrays his views, but it's, I would also say it's fair because Orwell was skeptical, curmudgeon and openly critical to anyone he thought lied, really. Like, he had a very right. clear-eyed view of what the truth should be and what it should sound like, and he just was not up for, you know, maintaining that on, on anyone's behalf. So I, I think the overall project here is working. I, I yeah. think he's being pretty even-handed in how he presents it, for for the most part. I was, when I read that Orwell worked in the propaganda department, I was like, oh, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, I thought my head would explode. I was yeah. like, what? You got to learn the techniques before you use them yourself in your storytelling. It's yeah, like, what do they say? True. Write what you know. Yeah. <laughs> and he went and wrote what he knew. <laughs> you know? Yeah, everyone can get swept up in wartime, that's for sure. And it's yeah. also, yeah, he just makes for such a great study as a human life because he, he also started out as a cop, even though, you know, he would come to distrust all of violence and authority in a, in a way, though, as the book is again portraying, I think accurately, he was pretty pragmatic about a human violence and when it should be used or not used and everything. And, right. you know, the, it's right or wrong applications. But so, OK, I, I think you're getting a pretty good balance of both narratives. OK, I'll, I'll give my please continue real quickly, just because we've yeah. dragged on that segment uh, in a great way. But. <laughs> I just want to make sure we each get one in. My Please Continue is I do have a streak in me that loves military history. And I in high school, I especially hit it hard. I think I watched every war movie ever made and was buying DVDs up left and right and watching documentaries and everything. So I was really into the Churchill parts when they when the author fully digresses and like ignores Churchill and just talks about the military aspects, the strategies, which I could see somebody becoming frustrated with. But 
I, I think he indulges it as much as you need to to know if Churchill was succeeding or failing, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a part of me, though, that has been dormant and lain dormant for a long time. Like, I really haven't dug in it, into a thing like this since high school. But when on 118 through 119, when he's talking about the Blitz and the bombing of London and all that stuff, and then he talks about how the Air Defor- uh, Defense Force, was it the RAF? The DAF? Forget the acronym. I think RAF. RAF, yeah, yeah the, the our Royal Air Force, I think. But yeah, yeah, when he talks about how they succeeded, like here are the three components, he basically for an entire page just quotes another book. <laughs> he like goes to another historian and says like, well, look, this guy knew it. He studied it. Here's what happened. Here's his you know key thesis and points. I like that because at least it took a book that's probably 500 pages and then he just gave it to me in a page. And I'm trusting him enough, I guess, to shrug and be like, oh, that's fascinating to know. Okay, well, those are interesting points. I didn't know about that one before or something. You know, I didn't know about those two out of the three. And so I am enjoying those moments where he kind of turns off course briefly and references some mega work. He does that with Churchill too, because Churchill wrote extensive autobiographies about it. And it's clear that Mm -hmm. he's just rifling through 500 page you know books to give us a nugget <laughs> which right. i'm personally enjoying that kind of hand holding and what am i trying to think of like a guide a guidance what's is there a better word for that well like a guidance anyway through those bigger works so and i, I really got a kick out of the the air defense of britain and all that stuff so please continue yeah, for me yeah go ahead. that's definitely a lot of um I, i've never I knew that you would enjoy this book. Let me just say, um, yeah, yeah. knowing knowing how um, you had told me before about your interest in in war books and and, yeah. and movies before, so I was like, oh, I'm this will be a good one off my bookshelf for for Travis to enjoy. I think, okay, so. <laughs> is that a please continue for you then or no? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I I enjoyed the um, the strategy stuff because that's stuff that I I normally just don't read. So. Mm-hmm. And Churchill makes the point, um, or Ricks makes the point, um, that Churchill knew that strategy, military strategy, isn't always about just, like, getting a win at that time. But a lot of the time you make moves just to be the first to make a move because it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's better to be on the attack rather than to constantly be defending and stuff. So it's, like, things that I hadn't thought about before, and I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, um, it's and do you find it because I find it concise enough to it is pretty propulsive. I think in a weird way, maybe intentionally or not, maybe because we Google these things and try and research books that are successful or something popular. But between this Devil in the White City and Oscar Wilde, I think we're putting we're picking pretty propulsive nonfiction. Like it, it kind of moves at a clip. Yeah, it's it's really fast and <laughs> three very different styles though, right? Like. Mm-hmm. I would say that this is way less narrative than oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Eric Larson's um, and a bit more academic and less conversational than Wild in America as well. I think uh, this, so is, this is like an in-between. You can jump in here because your, your study of the British literary voice is a million times more um, insightful than mine. I think this is British conversational. It's got some like mm. witticisms and phrases and such. Because isn't this man British or no? It feels British to me, the way this is written. You know what? That's a 
good question. Because I, I think it, <laughs> I, to me, it's felt conversational like, like Wilde did, but in a British kind of way. I feel like some of the criticisms and the way he's been, he critiques something, but is kind of coy or a little withholding about it in that British way, maybe even clever in some subtle spots. And I think I found mm-hmm. it to be, have that kind of voice. But I, yes, it is academic though in the wild way, kind of. He's American. Oh, okay. He, I find it to have a very British sensibility about it. I don't know why I think that, but yeah, um, yeah. Well, maybe maybe that's he. He's just channeling his Churchill slash Orwell. Could be, could be. <laughs> it's more likely that I just mis misread. You know, <laughs> I'm just misinterpreting. <laughs> but there, like when he wants to take down something or critique something, he do, It feels like he withholds a beat, which either is an academic kind of habit of mind or it just felt british to me where it's like you want to be even in your harshest moment a little reserved or buttoned up or something yeah i would say uh, but that might be because he's a he's um uh, a journalist yeah and and so he's he's not as willing to uh, write down what he's actually feeling per se yeah totally and how about so what about that's kind of your make it stop but i i was hoping to coax some details out of you because you you're saying there's some things in here that some tangents that don't work yeah for me there's just i mean i love that there's a lot of information and like i said before i am learning a lot that i had no idea about and i love that but there are some tidbits in there that i'm just like I don't understand why this is even in here is it just because you're trying to follow a chronological thread is it you so for example um with Orwell on page 31 um Ricks writes he also wooed Brenda Selkeld a well-read gym teacher he proposed repeatedly to her and ultimately accepted her refusals he went on to have a short romance with another woman then the next paragraph he then set out to experience the British underlife and then that was it. Right, like, right. I was just like, why is that in there? <laughs> what? Why? Why is his his sexual prowess like important? And and also with Churchill too. Like there was, um, he mentioned a couple of times. Like he like pursued a couple of women, but like it didn't work out. And then he like mm-hmm. yeah. um got married. And then there was like that aside about how his wife maybe was complaining that he was like not very sexually attentive to her. And right. I was like, why is right. this in here? Or that he was just a booze hound who like, I guess, you know, it's interesting, but also like underdeveloped and like, mm-hmm. I just didn't see how that tied to, especially since like the other, like the, the main focus is just so clearly tied to his thesis. And then you have this like, right throwing in of like rando romance stuff and i was like what <laughs> i felt like and i remember my memory of it too now is that the the stuff about the aristocracy in britain i feel like got away from him where he tried to follow a couple families or sons or daughters and there were just moments within paragraphs where i thought do i need to know you know it's like the what, what's the the social game like seven steps of connection where in seven connections you try and get to a famous person you, are you yeah, familiar yeah, with this yeah. yeah i forget the name of that game but it's yeah you try and find associations and you try and like jump enough to connect to somebody famous or whatever and it felt right. like he was doing that a couple times where i thought is this really gonna like pay off you know or are we just kind of leapfrogging around you know i, I wouldn't call it aimless because it 
it was at least relevant to the connections between the Nazi party and Germany and, or I'm sorry, and Britain and the politicians. But yeah, there have been a few moments like that for sure. I guess the generous reading, at least of the romances would be that he wants them to feel like actual lived lives, you know, like real humans, not just political animals who sat around all day Mm -hmm. trying to figure out policies and write critiques or whatever. But, uh, you know, I I agree with you. Those moments have felt like pretty limp. You know, he doesn't give him much room to breathe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think that's a point well taken. And how about for police? Did you get your police continuing? I don't remember if you explicitly did. Uh, no, but I mean, I, I, it was just that I would like to see, I I enjoyed seeing Orwell's thoughts on Churchill as a political figure and Mm -hmm. on his speeches where we actually see Orwell's like diary entries about Churchill. So I really enjoyed that because I thought that really like clarified, especially because Rick's made such a point of pointing out that Churchill was, um, usually a conservative he he also jumped right. around parties right um, <laughs> he very bullish but, in every way yeah. Yeah. and um but orwell was um not a conservative it was like quite the opposite but right. that he fully supported churchill and like seemed to align with him in in core beliefs in that way um so i thought that was really interesting and i'm really hoping like we haven't seen that with um churchill on orwell's writings but i'm really hoping that in the latter half we're going to have s- some of that um to to peek into as well yeah. once he gets into like animal farm I in 1984 f- i fear we won't have any really because in the early chapters maybe even one of the first ones or the intro he does mention that he knows churchill um read 1984 maybe twice I think was yeah. the quote, but I, I don't, that to me implied that maybe he didn't say anything about it, but he just acknowledged that he enjoyed it. Uh, but I, I hope so too. I hope he does have a lot to say. Orwell also dies pretty quickly after he publishes those things. And right. so I don't think, I really don't think there will be much in that regard. I like how most of the Orwell responses to Churchill have been pretty muted, you know, a sentence mm-hmm. here or there and who knows how much editing Ricks is doing, but it's just, it's pretty much like, wow, I can't agree. I, I can't believe I like that bastard. Okay. <laughs> or, I agree <laughs> with him. Good, good speech, you know, nothing profound, but just kind of yeah. nodding along. It, it does feel very curt and wartime. Like, you know, that's the kind of dialogue you have in a wartime where it's just like, all right, good enough. That's fine. <laughs> let's keep yeah. it moving. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to cocktail party quotes. This will be the final segment, but probably the longest of the first part book club. And this is where we just pull some quotes from the work that we thought were insightful, inspiring, interesting, any other I words I can think of interrelated (laughs) to other things that matter. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And so we're going to dig into those quotes. We'll talk about what fascinated us about it, what it meant to us. Why don't you throw one out there first, Amanda? Um, What's a cocktail party quote for you? Um, So this one I pulled from page three. Ooh. Coming in hot. Yeah, very beginning. (laughs) Orwell and Churchill recognized that the key question of their century ultimately was not who controlled the means of production, as Marx thought, or how the human psyche functioned, as Freud taught, but rather how to preserve the liberty of the individual during an age when the state was becoming powerfully intrusive into private life. Um, I thought this was really... Um, interesting because it does talk about Marx, mentions Marx and mentions Freud, both of whom are are huge figures in in both literature and history, actually. Yeah, in that century, too. Yeah. Um, 
and and actually, I know that Freud um, analyzed the literature specifically in um, in discussing some of his um, theories. Did Marx also do that? I feel like Marx also did some literary yes. analysis, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did lightly, but he. That's a complicated question. Yes, he did. <laughs> though I, the amount of it and the extent of it has been ex- has exploded since, like the. The Marxist framework for other things, for literature and the arts and such, is really a movement that that what is it post dates him or something. It's I wouldn't say he's responsible for that, but he's responsible for a framework of the world that then changed the way people interpreted art and such. But I mm-hmm. I don't think he would claim you know why well, I won't speak for him, but I I don't think that entire school of thinking right and that entire framework should be a hundred percent put on a person who is basically a social observer and economist kind of you know and mm-hmm. like a you know social sociologist of a sort historian kind of so anyway but so kind of is the answer yeah <laughs> but not not to the extent because it's it's like a major school of thinking now you know in some right. academic circles and i don't i don't think you can say in his life he would have been like no i want to make sure that literature from here on out will be interpreted this way like i don't think that was the aim you know i not at no primary source that i can recall really did that matter to him the most you know right. so anyway yeah so i thought that was i, I love that there's um a thought towards Marx and Freud um, and how uh, specifically the last part of the sentence, how to preserve the liberty of the individual during an age when the state was becoming powerfully intrusive into private life. Uh, I think that's interesting because um, that's a conversation that's still kind of being held today. Right. Um, uh, In, in American politics as well. So I just thought that it's, it uh, showed me that this book, though it is about World War II, um, could still be relevant to um, our our uh, some people's political views today. Yeah, yeah, and the kind of Western, the Western liberal project of individualism, free speech, those kinds of things, power over mm-hmm. government structures. It's not a conversation that's died. In fact, I'm pretty sure statistically, like democracy is currently in retreat um in the globe you know the number of countries that have retreated to authoritarian regimes has only increased even i think they the organization watchdog for that for the globe even put the u.s last year for for too many good reasons into like a yellow zone of like creeping back into maybe creeping into authoritarianism democratic institutions perhaps failing or falling and so mm-hmm. i yeah i mean this is not some it's definitely a timely study and is an interesting look at how governments can can shift focus and can morph and you know basically what totalitarianism can offer that democracy sometimes can't offer and so yeah no it's definitely a timely read as well yeah yeah okay i think that's a great quote i'm gonna throw one out there let's pull one let's pull one about orwell you picked a pretty grandiose one you picked big picture i'm gonna go small details here with my first (laughs) one um of all the things of Orwell's I've read, which is, to be honest, like most of it, <laughs> not not his nonfiction, of course, but like the, the big books and stuff, I think mm-hmm. Down and Out in Paris and London is still the one I remember the most fondly, but it's also the one I haven't, you know, I don't reread stuff much, so it'll always be, I read that when I was a college student. And I think that the 
the description of it is kind of even handed, but maybe a little unfair. I'm going to read a quote on 34 when he talks about the book. He says, Down and Out sometimes reads like a lurid guidebook to the exotic world of the urban poor. In several places in the book, Orwell limbs the status structure within a segment of proletarian society, a concern that seems quite British in an unconscious way on his part. And then he talks about the restaurant he works at. He says, Near the book's end, the narrator returns to England to live on the streets of London, where he discerns a clear caste structure among its beggars. There's a, there's a sharp social line between those who merely cadge and those who attempt to give some value for money. The most preposterous are street performers, and then he goes on, he says, to conclude this bit, Orwell was just 25 years old when he went to Paris, and the book's flaws are those of a young writer still learning his craft. Orwell had an overworked sense of smell, so at times down and out seems more about the stench of the downtrodden than their sufferings or modes of survival. And then he gives the examples about that. So I think... I agree about the young writer part, and we've, we've in our own book club studies here, examined a couple first published books by Toni Morrison, and was it was Chang Rae Lee's also first? I think it was. Yeah, right? his and, was. And I think their literary sensibilities were way more honed, way sharper. I, I still will always admire Down and Out, though, for it, it does feel like an honest book, and I still think you get all of the signature things about Orwell, a clear clear-sightedness a kind of viciousness toward lies and apathy and sort of, and I agree that it has some of those British kind of, I don't know, I guess superstructures or sub- subconscious decisions. But I remember, yeah, thinking that Down and Out was a pretty, uh, the, the brutal moments, the, the ugliness of it, that kind of a thing, which earned him some criticism, right? He wrote books pretty honest, he would say honestly, but people might say too harshly about the impoverished, uh, maybe not mm-hmm. sympathetic enough or something. But I remember reading it thinking that it felt kind of like raw and honest to me at the time. And you know, that my perspective on it might be wrong now. So I remember reading those lines then thinking like, eh, that's not quite my memory of, you know, my reaction to it. I wouldn't have said it was a literary masterwork or something, but I, I admired it maybe more than that writer did. I think homage to Ca- or um, homage to Catalonia is is pretty amazing too. I remember reading that as well, um, and so I, I agreed with most of his insights about that. But yeah, I just thought some of those reactions were. I, I guess I came away mixed, but again, that's my opinion's pretty entrenched, having read all that stuff. I'm not sure. Did any of his descriptions make you want to explore those books, or how did you feel about the descriptions? Yeah. Um... So I read Animal Farm a long time ago in 1984 in high school. So it's been yeah, classic. It's been a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but th- that's the only stuff that I had read by Orwell. So um, and and I re- remember being struck by um, his writing. I have not read any of his nonfiction, obviously, and I am interested to see what his nonfiction is like. Mm-hmm. Um, but to the the one that you specifically mentioned, of the works that Ricks mentioned prior to 1984 and um, Animal Farm, that was the one that was the most positive in his view, mm-hmm. um, uh, in his description. So I am interested in reading that um, and seeing the difference, I think, for me, because um, as you mentioned, we did read... Um, first time you know, the the first novels of, of a couple of authors and we enjoyed them right um, right and 
I definitely want to read more of them. <laughs> um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So I'm I'm interested in seeing what Orwell's was like that, um, and maybe it's just like because 1984 and Animal Farm were just so, I mean, so big and and amazing. But if those two did not exist, would the would that novel um, would that work still be able to, to stand on its own Yeah. in, in this climate, right? With these readers. So I remember thinking, cause I think I was reading him alongside maybe like an American realism class or I forget the context and it's all very contextual cause you know, you're reading a lot in, in those in school and college and stuff. And there, a lot of it's bouncing around in your mind. And I mm-hmm. think his work stuck out to me because it felt to me like what realism should be which is not really attempting everything but like being really vicious and clear-eyed about the stuff that you care about but Mm -hmm. you know doing enough of that realism to to make it feel full but not exhausting yourself over the whole thing like I remember getting exhausted in those units and just thinking you know this isn't necessarily engaging my mind it's just sort of like it's too much or something I remember thinking like Orwell is to me a Charles Dickens that I can admire whereas every time I try and read Charles Dickens I'm like this man is he's gone too far you know it's just like I don't (laughs) who needs all this what are we doing (laughs) and so it's like can you strip some things down and be a little more forthright or something to me and I remember thinking Orwell felt like that to me with those two books um, and the road to Wigan Pier is the other one I had read. We're, the the ones he really savages in the book, the uh, clergyman's daughter and the Aspidistro, that whatever that novel yeah. was. Those I could not even find. I don't think in college they weren't like published back then or something. So I've never read those. But I've read the Orwell himself was like yeah. he, the clergyman's daughter. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to send Garbage. that out. Like he's writing a letter, right? I'm not going to send it out to you because it's yeah. trash. Yeah, which makes me want to read it <laughs> for sure. It would be a fun experiment for sure. Yeah, and I I did read a good amount of stuff that he wrote about the the hanging and the elephant, whatever that was called. Uh, some of the things mm-hmm. about being in in India, I did read. Or he was in India, right? Not Bangladesh. Yeah. Okay, I want to say Bangladesh yes. for some reason, but yes. India. And so I did read some of those, and I remember thinking some of that short work is compelling. And he's a great nonfiction writer, you know, the the things after all that, when he wrote nonfiction and articles, essays and things. I think some of that's pretty excellent. But, yeah, I didn't I didn't want to seem too defensive about a person I haven't read, honestly, in a, in a very long time, like since college, because I'm a horrible rereader. I just don't reread very much. And so I don't want to seem too defensive, but some of his critiques of the book's I kind of shrugged at and thought, I don't know if I'd agree with that, but I also, you know, I don't want to have to go back and reread them to di- argue with you about it, <laughs> <laughs> right. you know? Um, so yeah. Uh, another quote for you, Amanda, what do you got? Sure. Um, so we had talked about the military strategy comments before. So one of the um, quotes that I had chosen was actually that yeah. it's on page 107 at the very top, the first paragraph. <clears throat> um, so Churchill, okay, he also Mm -hmm. understood, as many did not, that military moves that did not make sense on a tactical basis sometimes were nonetheless advantageous for strategic or political reasons. Churchill knew that in wartime it is almost always better for a military to do something, such as attack the Germans in Norway, as the British had done that spring, than to do nothing and so yield the initiative to the enemy. He was conscious that sometimes this bent for action would be difficult to justify in pure military terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found that interesting because, as I had said before, I, I had not really thought about like I, strategy and stuff like that. I, you would laugh at me playing chess because I'm just like full of whimsy, right? Like I just... <laughs> <laughs> it's about the style. I'm just like, this seems nice. Uh-huh. 
I'll go with this. Why not? Um, so strategy, not really my forte. Um, but I, I guess like my idea of, of military is that everything is done for a purpose, but not the purpose of like politics necessarily. Although war and stuff like that is driven by politics. Um, I think of, um, strategy and tactics in military as being like always for the win. Um, so reading that paragraph, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. That makes sense to, to do mm-hmm. it that way. But also like, man, the, the, the lives that you're playing with at the same time, is just, yeah. oh my gosh, it's, yeah. and it, it brings to mind, um, Ulysses Grant, right. His strategy of just like throwing bodies at everything. Right. Which ultimately won the war, but, mm-hmm. but it's just like, oh my gosh, the, the, the idea of, uh, sacrificing um, these lives for the greater good. It's just, it's hard to to really see that, I suppose, um, mm-hmm. in, in real life, in, or not for me, um, since I have not ever been personally in a war or anything like that. But, sure, sure. Um, but to, to see that written out, um, it's, it's just, I guess, something that I was like, oh man, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I'll always remember in high school when I had my military history phase which really lasted i don't know the whole time frankly but that was around the time when the u.s was deep into it in the middle east afghanistan iraq that kind of post 9-11 time and i just remember experiencing two or one phenomenon but because of those two things which was the first absorbing a lot of military history in the world reading about world war one and two and the scope of it being really unfathomable compared to when the U.S. was in Afghanistan and Iraq, I remember like it would be Wisconsin local news when someone died over there and they weren't even from Wisconsin, and it would like you know it would be like five people died today, and it would show their names and like it was like I we had to know about every death mm-hmm. as it was a such a profound thing, and it was like we had to feel it all it reverberated, and I'm not sure if that's a you know I'm not sure what this is about the media or the news or, or whatever. But I just remember that happening and looking at the numbers and seeing like, okay, 4,000 soldiers died, like 5,000. And then knowing that in world war two, that many people died like before noon. And I just remember it was a strange thing in my mind that made me wonder, I wonder if the world could ever really comprehend or take that level of a fight ever again. Or if it, if it's really, if humanity in some way, not, not evolved, that's too simple a summary of it, but it has like, in some way is not prepared or would never again be prepared for that level of death. And then, you know, talk about a, a, an elegant segue, like, did this last year remind us of nothing? I think people can do it more than they want to admit. I, th- I think people can look at mass casualty numbers and kind of blink them away more readily than they would perhaps wish to admit to themselves and to others right. like I you, you would and you know that I, I'll never forget that just thinking I was learning about wars on such immense scales and then it was like every time someone died in the Iraq Afghanistan thing it was like man it was like everyone got a human interest story and you heard tales of these backgrounds and it was it just felt like I was seeing that in a smaller scale but then you know you zoom all the way out and you're like okay so a thousand people have died so far we've been there for like six years and that many people died in like an hour in World War Two, like or right. you know more, way more. <laughs> and so yeah, I don't know I, that that juxtaposition. Seeing that, I I thought like man, maybe 
maybe the world is over war in that way because we don't seem to be able to process it like that. And we're, right. we're dealing with this in a much more intimate way now and just thinking, man, maybe, yeah, maybe that's just not, we're not going to have conflict like that. But, you know, and then COVID happens and people are kind of just blinking. I mean, you know, certainly it's people have been eulogizing and memorializing at this time. And it's, I'm not saying people aren't caring enough or anything crass like that, but I also noticed the world has continued to turn and things are relatively normal. You know, you get your vaccine, mm-hmm. you move on and people just kind of, they say the right things and then continue on. And I just, maybe it's about resiliency of humanity or something. Maybe we can read it positively that people can kind of just keep calm and carry on. Right. Well, in the book, bring it back to the book when they're getting bombed out, like what did that survey show? It took them a couple months and then everyone sleeps through the night, <laughs> go from right, 30% yeah. to 1% or what, you know, it's like, I don't know. Humans are kind of resilient and they can segment, they can forget certain things and ignore certain things if they need to, to survive. So yeah, very long winded digression by me an all timer. I I have a tendency for these, but it just reminded me of that feeling in high school being like, wow, maybe we'll never no more mass death maybe. And then I don't know who knows they adapted to it back then. Right. Orwell Mm -hmm. did, you know, Churchill did. It is, it is strange to see decisions like that though. And, yeah, you you want to put, I don't know, there's also this thing of like, you want to put your post-war morals onto it, but you know, wartime just has a different sort of tone and register to it. So I think, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I don't know much about like uh, current day strategies and stuff like that, but I think that I would I would hope that just throwing bodies at something, just like the mass numbers like that is... Is just not a tactic that's like used anymore. <laughs> we've had we've had no need. There's been no conflict of that scale, you know, since yeah. the Vietnam War, really. And technology has changed immensely too. And I'm not gonna jump into make any broad sweeping conclusions or something, but yeah, no, of course you would hope not. And then, but then who knows? I don't. I don't know. You would have thought not this many people would have had to have get, gotten COVID or something either, but. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's I'm not sure if the book has anything deep to say about it either. It is treated as more of a Churchill pragmatism kind of like he's pretty blunt about things. And, you know, he gives his rousing speeches and everything. So I'm not even sure if the book is too much concerned with the digression I just had. But no, I think your quote's really well chosen. And it does. It is really I don't know. I, I was also like, again, neck deep in some war, war media, much of it, even propaganda, I'd say, too, in high school. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, but I watch Platoon a lot. Platoon is anti-war propaganda. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was watching Apocalypse Now and Platoon a lot. So, you know, I got, I got both both sides. But nice. yeah, it is it is difficult to to read it. And, you know, this book is so brisk. It's not like it's spending long pages really wringing out the ethics and morals of everything. It's all pretty, mm-hmm. you know, it's all pretty quick and, and to the point and everything. Yeah. All right. Let me pull out another quote before I go on too long. I, I thought this early moment contrasting their writing styles was pretty insightful. On page 11, the author says, George Orwell once asserted, good prose, good prose sorry, is like a window pane. But if Churchill's prose were a window, it would be a stained glass glowing at the end of the, a cathedral's transept. His style can be ornate at times, even gaudy, but he knew what he was doing. He was intoxicated by language, reve- reveling sorry, in the nuances and sounds of words. He likes to use five or four words with all the same meaning, as an old man shows you his orchids. Not to show them off, but just because he loves them, observed the wartime do- his wartime doctor, Charles Wilson. Which, way to go, Charles Wilson, that's a... 
excellent analogy and very kind of heartwarming and quaint about it but it yeah. does i think it is you know churchill has a, a maybe a poet's heart or soul and I, actually he has a warrior's heart or soul or something maybe a poet's spirit i'm not sure what to compare it to but <laughs> i do think that it also kind of behooves politicians to orate in that way that repetitive kind of like really long-winded but punchy style that some politicians really it honestly i call it like a preacher style because it reminds me of kind of that pulpit preaching esque tone of voice or whatever but Mm -hmm. yeah and i you know knowing orwell's literary reputation like he's pretty cutting he's got his like have you ever read his like 11 rules for writing or whatever no he wrote a pretty famous quick nonfiction piece about you know here are the 11 things never to do and it's basically like cut everything cut more cut it all make your verbs snappy and don't use adjectives you know (laughs) like it's it's the classic really harsh writing philosophy you know don't be don't be um flowery get to the point that kind of it's that type Mm -hmm. of advice I'll, i'll let you go look up what it is exactly but so i think yeah to contrast them in that way early does show a bit of personality difference i enjoyed that yeah, I, I do like it when the author <clears throat> brings the two together to show either similarities or differences because, mm-hmm. I mean, that is kind of his thesis, but also it just, I, I like, I like to see who they are as people as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think they're too far apart in the book then? Or not too far, are they apart too often? Like, do you wish more of the book was direct compare contrast of a sort? Um, I think that for the beginning, I did not expect it to be, um, as direct a compare and, and contrast. Yeah. Um, because obviously I was expecting like more biography, which of course are going to have two very different lives. Um, but <clears throat> I think that I would like to see more of it going forward. Okay. Um, yeah. just cause like his thesis is about, you know, how they both helped with fighting for for individualism so right right and i think that part is coming through enough at least at this point do does an author or historian really have to codify the nazis much it's such a it's such a well understood ideology sort of time period the iconography is so rampant and stuff i feel like that's something you wouldn't have to explain to too many american high school graduates at least right maybe you'd have to do a refresher on some of the specifics because it's so easy to just think like all Nazis were running concentration camps, which, you know, they pulled off the gen- the worst genocide pretty much ever. But like it was a pretty massive program that they had a lot of other beliefs, things going on. They had a strange military kind of structure thing happen. Like it was it was a pretty vast project that they embarked upon. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most of it horrific, basically all of it horrific. But yeah, so I wonder what you'd have to explain to an average kind of like American high school grad or whatever. But any other quotes for cocktail party discussion? I did. I did myself a long cocktail party quote there. That was a definitely <laughs> that was a cocktail party. You go and you like walk away from the person and they just keep talking. And you're like, I think I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, you're like, oh, okay, cool, man. All right, see you later. Uh. <laughs> that was good. Um, <laughs> uh, so I've got one more, um, and it's from page 51. Mm-hmm. And um, 
The Times' history with extraordinary nerve blamed those hotheads um, so for making the disastrous policy of appeasement necessary, arguing that the newspaper, quote, like the government, was helpless in the face of an apparently isolationist commonwealth and a pacifist Britain, end quote. What this explanation fails to note is that the role of a leading newspaper is not just to follow opinion, but to try to shape it, especially when a major government policy rests on faulty assumptions. And it certainly is not the role of a newspaper editor to suppress news on the grounds that it might bother people or force government officials to reconsider their policies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I... I thought that was interesting for a couple of reasons. I think that um, now we've um, entered uh, an age of distrust of the media in general, um, which, I mean, we've always, I suppose, had a little bit of a mistrust of, of media, but now it's like um, <laughs> the idea of like misinformation and stuff like that is, is a big thing that's... Um, Right. being discussed nowadays, especially right. with newspapers and um, articles and everything else, uh, TV shows. Um, but what I found interesting in this quote, too, was that the author, Ricks, is saying that the newspaper is not just to obviously follow opinion, but to shape opinion. So it's like he is saying that you can, so you present information, but you present it in a way in order to shape the viewer's idea. So uh, newspapers are meant to be persuasive. They are meant to be not necessarily just informational, which I found really interesting. Yeah. Or at least I think it's persuasive, not in that you need a good editorial section, though that's part of it too, but persuasive in that it's, it's Orwellian in that way of, well, Orwellian, not in the dystopian way, but Orwellian in terms of what he preferred, which is just the lie is the worst of it, you know? That's the thing you mm-hmm. can never... And you can never back down from unpleasant realities, which is what he... You know, Orwell in critiquing Soviet... The Soviet type of communism, well, what became Soviet, but what the time was just Russian communism, you know, he came out harshly against some elements of it, and that, that didn't sit well with the ideologues and everything. And, like, he just didn't... Mm-hmm. That wasn't his way. That was never going to be his way. He just wouldn't... Was never going to respond to bullshit, you know? He was in the war front... And when he saw people lying about it, he was there. He would call it out. It's it's not dissimilar to that type of... It's more truth-telling than bending someone's opinion. But the hope is that by telling aggressive truth, you can eventually influence them. Now, that doesn't... As we saw in Spain with Orwell, that doesn't really work against ideologues, against party loyalists and, like, diehard revol... You know, right. it doesn't work against um, diehard revolutionaries or reactionaries. Like, it, you know, that's... That could be a difficult position to maintain, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think um, Facebook news, Amanda, is the way of the future? Is that what you want to talk about? You want to? You want a five minute digression about Facebook news, or do you want to? <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Just no. Do you not get most of your news from meme pictures on Facebook now? Is that not where you have? Is that where not where you form most of your political deep political beliefs and ideologies? Is because of a picture of the American flag with some meme text over it? Is that not? No, okay. no, I'm, I'm too old to uh, gotcha. <laughs> to, to be um, a part well, of that whole movement I th- no, I, okay. but I do find it interesting that with like my Google feed and stuff like that the articles are curated for me and it's it's funny to see sometimes like 
the mm. things that Google thinks that I would be interested in, in reading about. Well, after this, they're going to think you care about World War II history books. So Godspeed on that <laughs> front. It's all history biographies and military strategy books from here on out. <laughs> I'm totally cool with it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Let me close out with my final cocktail party quote. It'll be a quick one. I just thought it was more humorous and insightful in, in small ways than anything, which is about when um, the ambassador Kennedy came back to America. The, yeah. the American got fired. That same month, Churchill complained in a note to his foreign secretary that he was astonished by this misleading Kennedy stuff. However, a few weeks later, FDR was elected to an unprecedented third term in office. This was a great relief to Churchill. It meant that American aid to Britain could be offered more openly without as much worry about an isolationist backlash in the American Midwest, and it meant that he got rid of Kennedy. Kennedy, uh, sent home, continued to spout off, democracy is finished in England. He confided to newspapermen when he was back in the U.S. He added, there's no sense in our getting in. And then later, when FDR meets to him to fire him, he rolls out of the room and found his wife, Eleanor. I never want to see that son of a bitch as long as I live, he told her. Take his resignation and get him out of there. And then she she protested and everything. I, I think the Kennedy moments, maybe, you know, there's one too many references to it or something. But, you know, the American involvement in the war was was profound to how the war ended up going. And then also, it's. I think this is another crucial reminder, just like the aristocracy in Britain, they're kind of Nazi sympathizers and they, they didn't mind a peace deal. It's also crucial to remember that America was by no means a sure thing going in and that even there were people that just thought, let's just give Hitler what he wants. Let's concede this. This is not our fight. This is not our business. World War One didn't really involve us. And look at how that shit show turned out like it. You know, it was just there. That was recent history. And there was this real political thread of, you know. Uh, maybe even as Kennedy kind of put it too, like democracy, what's the point of democracy anyway? Like what's this whole ideology, this whole movement, this whole push is kind of this experiment is going to fail, you know, and that this is going to be right. the final death knell of it. And I just thought that that is such a crucial. I mean, it's crucial to the thesis of the book. First, so it's like literally the book is about fighting that kind of um, ideology and that creep of totalitarianism. But I also just enjoyed it. That that was a humorous bit. It does portray Kennedy as kind of adult and kind of an annoyance and everything. And you know, it's it's good to see FDR call someone a son of a bitch. Kind of a fun, you know, <laughs> moment. I, yeah, I I was like, oh. Oh, I didn't I we all know of um John F Kennedy, right? But I had mm-hmm. not thought about his parentage and oh yeah. and that his his dad was in politics beforehand and that his dad was just so not uh-huh. <laughs> a good politician. Not so or... much into the American experiment maybe or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. "Oh, okay." You know, if your entire family's identity is we are political, we're a political dynasty, as it turns out, you got to ride the waves of politics, which means at one point you might be a Nazi sympathizer. Oh no. It's a tough yeah. look out here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not exactly a great historical look to be a uh, kind of shrugging the shoulder at the nazis or whatever yeah yeah so that i thought that was an interesting yeah and an important aside and i thought a, a good little it was almost a little mini narrative in there you know they're kind of tete-a-tetes mm-hmm. and kennedy's you know rubbing his nose in it and just kind of saying how britain's finished and uh, yeah that was a, i thought a nice little mini thread in the book yeah any other quotes yeah. or I don't, parts you want to discuss in part one no, I'm good. Okay, and I'm hoping for more or- Orwell, too, in the second half. We I know we talked about yeah. that a lot, but, yeah, it's been Churchill heavy. I For me, that's been the interesting stuff, too, though, because not only because my kind of military predilections, but also just because I feel like I knew most of the Orwell stuff. It felt very checkboxy for me. Like, oh, yeah, I remember. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah. Anyway, read homage to Catalonia. That book is pretty great. So, 
Yeah. Final takeaway from today. Okay, we have been <laughs> the Lightly Literary Podcast. We thank you so much for listening to part one on Churchill and Orwell, or what did I call them earlier? Orhill? Yeah, <laughs> uh, or- Orhill. <laughs> Oral, the fight for freedom. That's the pig's name, I think, in Animal Farm. Oral. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we have other books coming up. If this one did not interest you or if you're not going to read part two for some reason, we'll be doing soon in order. Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. You Can't Keep a Good Woman Down by Alice Walker. And My Favorite Thing is Monsters by M.L. Ferris. So keep an eye out on the feed for those. We will do our usual cadence of a book recommendation, then two book club episodes on those. Join us next Friday, as always, for part two. We always post book clubs on Friday, so we'll be doing the second half of Churchill and Orwell next Friday. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll see you between the pages.